This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the first show in our new series on the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The TRC focuses on what has happened to Wabanaki children and families since 1978 after the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act. It is specifically centered on the state of Maine's child welfare practices where Native children were removed from their homes and placed with white families. At the request of my guests, we decided to break with our traditional form of a one-on-one interview. They let me know that in keeping with Wabanaki values, they wanted to do the interviews together. So for this first interview, I'll be talking with two women at the heart of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process here in Maine. They both work with Maine Wabanaki REACH, which stands for Reconciliation, Engagement, Advocacy, Change, and Healing and is the group that conceptualized and implemented the TRC. Maria Gerard is Penobscot and a historian. She's been involved in educating Maine citizens about Penobscot history and contemporary issues for nearly a decade, and currently works with Maine Wabanaki Reach as a health and wellness coordinator. Esther Atian is Passamaquoddy from Sibayig and serves as co-director of the Maine Wabanaki Reach. Here's our conversation. I want to start with terms, just so we're all u- using the shared language. Um, what does Wabanaki mean, and who does it include? Well, Wabanaki refers to, first of all, the territory of what is now called Maine. It also refers to the people, the indigenous peoples of this territory. And um, to translate, Wabanaki in our language refers to the dawn land. It's referring to the first light of a new day, Chihuahuan. And um, the Wabanaki people are the Passamaquoddy, the Penobscot, the Mi'kmaq, the Maliseet, and the Abenaki peoples. Thank you. One of the things that I know I was feeling in preparing for this interview was being nervous that I would use the wrong word and wanting to use the most respectful word. Do you prefer to be called Native American, Penobscot, Native peoples, tribes, Indians? What, what is the language that, that is of your choice? Well, my first preference would, would be to be called by my tribe's name, which is Penobscot, but I don't take any offense to any of the other terms. Um, we use the word Indian quite a bit. There's um, you know, the Indian Child Welfare Act and the main Indian land claims. So it, the term Indian is in our vocabulary quite a bit. No offense taken. <laughs> okay, thank you. So I know that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission really focuses on the events after 1978, but you're a historian, Maria, and so I want to begin by asking you about where this story really begins. Well, that's always the challenge in peace. Um, for Wabanaki people, I think the story begins thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, the earliest documented um, journals about Wabanaki people describe a very lush and, and abundant landscape and healthy and strong uh, people. We had our own system of governance and we we're doing quite well. Archaeological evidence has us in this space 10 to 11,000 years, but a lot of our creation stories 
indicate that we've been here forever. And a lot of Wabanaki people would say this is where the Creator placed us. And so I would like to ask you to kind of take me through some of the most important milestones in the history leading up to the present moment. And I don't know if we should begin with when, you know, European settlers first arrived in terms of where the beginning of that common understanding already doesn't exist. Sure. So in a timeline of, say, 11,000 years, we're only talking about a little um, blip on the radar in the past 500 years um, when colonization first started. Um, Wabanaki people were very welcoming to the the people who arrived on these shores. There's a lot of stories about how accommodating they were, um, helpful. Um, people wouldn't have survived the winter, oftentimes is a story we hear, if it weren't for the kindness of our ancestors. And um, we welcomed people as guests. Um, Wabanaki people, especially the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy, were also very instrumental in winning the American Revolution um, for this country. They were very active uh, participants in that. And as a matter of fact, George Washington himself gave credit to the Penobscots and Passamaquoddies and in, in that time defined the territory that would be reserved exclusively for their use in gratitude for their service to the country. But it wasn't long after the American Revolution was won that um, I think the burgeoning country had a big war debt to pay and the resources were just too tantalizing to ignore in uh, Wabanaki territory. And so there were actual um, predatory efforts to persuade the Wabanaki to relinquish lands. One of the uh, stories that was often told was that um, we were once a, a big, powerful nation, and now we were, we were small and weak, and why did we need all of that land for ourselves? And so we got off on a very um, bad foot after um, you know, our ancestors extended the hand of kindness. And very little is known about Wabanaki history. Um, it feels almost now like we're just coming out and finding our voices and sharing our version of histories because it's not recorded. It's taken so many, um, so many years for people to piece together what, how our history happened and to get a full scope of um, really the, the genocidal tactics of the government to, to take the land away from the Wabanaki people. And that left, you know, a, peoples who were so dependent on the land and the territory and the waters to sustain themselves that left them in um, really dire circumstances and just, you know, sent them on this fast track to poverty. Uh, you used the word genocide, and I want to ask you more about that. The event where I heard you speak was at an event um, about genocide, and I learned at that event I had not known before what the official United Nations definition of genocide is, and I, I want to actually go over it because I think it's worth mentioning. So what I learned is that in the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, written in 1948, genocidal acts include five different things. I thought it was, you know, the the deliberate slaughter of a whole people, 
Um, and I didn't know that it also includes causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of a group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and lastly, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group, which is exactly what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is, is about, obviously. Um, I, you know, I was so struck at how little I had learned about that in my education growing up. I had not understood the scope and how fitting the word genocide is. Well, I think that's by purpose and design. Um, you know, the, the plan was to eliminate the, the Native peoples from the, land, from the territory. Oftentimes in American history, we, we hear, hear that term, the Indian problem. Well, the problem was the Indians were on the land and the colonists wanted the land. And so sadly, every point that you mentioned in that definition can be applied to the relationship um, between the colonizing government. First, it was Massachusetts um, and then Maine, and the native peoples of this territory. Is there a controversy over that? I mean, once I read all that and heard, it felt like it was the absolute appropriate term. But is there? do people not accept that? I don't think they've really considered it until recently. It, it almost seems even in um, my community that word was not um, a word that was used too readily um, until recent in the past. Esther, what's your feeling about that? Um, I, I was just going to say that I, you know, I had similar in thinking about this word genocide and whether or not to use it and, and if it's controversial. I think about also the doctrine of Christian discovery, which there's been efforts to repudiate that. And, and I, Why don't you explain what that is? Um, it was basically the rationale for taken the lands, as Maria said. Um, it was these proclamations by popes in Rome saying that you can go out and uh, inhabit any territory where there are non-Christians and take over the land and put them into slavery and, you know, all of the things that we're talking about with genocide. Uh, and I, I mean, everything is tied to the land, as Maria said. You know, they needed, genocide was necessary to get at the land because they wanted the resources. And I, I don't... I don't have much hope for people really ever seeing it and being educated about it enough to want to do something about it to right these wrongs. I mean, fully when it comes to possession of the land, because they, you know, it. Maria talked about things being by design, and it's by design that Native people are invisible. Because if you really have to reconcile with what happened in the territory that of where you call home. It's it's that's a that's a lot to reconcile and a lot to try to repair and make right. And if there was an ever uh, a widespread national, you know, federal government level um, repudiation of the Christian doctrine of Christian discovery, or even admitting that there was genocide, it it it's it's so big and so much for them to admit. Um, but that's what we have to do. We have to educate people about the truth. I think it's scary for people on uh, everywhere to think about it. I mean, I've in our work with building uh, allies in the white community and seeing how folks like yourself, like you said, you had never heard that, had never learned that, finding out this information and, and what it does to them. You know, the ones that don't just take it in and say, okay, that, that happened and 
just go on their lives, but the ones that can't go on with their lives the way they always have, knowing what happened here. Uh, you know, that, that gives us a lot of hope, that and, and uh, working within our own communities and teaching our own people about the truth. They, and like Maria said, why, you know, there's a lot of silence and it's by design, you know, and now we're finding out, gee, there was an Indian adoption project that forcibly removed children as far part of an experiment, native children from their homes to be adopted by, you know, white families to prove that they were better off. Those things really did happen. Mm -hmm. These things weren't just happenstance. They were part of big policies and strategies for sterilization. I mean, scalp proclamations, scalp proclamations. So I want to get into each one of these things because they all feel so powerful and they're such an important part of the history. But I, I want to just not rush past what you what you started with, Esther, when you said, you know, there's an ongoing investment in that invisibility because if you really take this in, if you really take in, this was genocide in no uncertain terms. It meets, it meets the definition in every way. Um, I'm hearing it almost in two ways. Your sense that like the resistance to that is partly because of the fear of reparations, like literally having to give land back concretely. But then secondly, I'm hearing that to really take it in is devastating. And the sort of, it's so, it's hard. People have resistance to both. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, if we're looking at individuals and then looking at the whole, the collective, those are true. Yeah. And I, what I understand about the TRC itself is that actual legal reparations is not on the table, at least for this process. Is that right? I would say it's not the goal, but it's not off, off the, the table. table. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the, it right. It's not on, the current. Right. It, right. it may be It's a not very... in their mandate to come right. to any reparations. They come into recommendations. And um, many people in the tribal communities have communicated with the TRC to tell them that they, they think reparations should be on the table. So it's not, uh, you know, whatever recommendations they make, they make. The assist, Yes, we assist yeah. them, but... That report will be theirs based on their ind independent investigation, and the recommendations they come to are theirs. I so, see. So the five commissioners could actually make a recommendation for reparations. That that might happen. They've they've received feedback about what the recommendations should be, and what they should include, and what reparations means. You know, there's a lot of when the commission has visited tribal communities, they've sat in a circle with community members and had have listened a lot and have heard a lot of voices. And what, you know, reparations means to one person, it means something different to, to another. So, yeah. So I want to go back and lay a little bit more groundwork historically. I want to come back to you, Maria, because we've mentioned several things that I want to make sure I'm clear about. So one is um, you talked about the scalping, and I learned about the Spencer Phipps Declaration. I wondered if you could just Tell me a little bit about, I'm guessing that's what you're referring to? Yes. Yes, and yeah. why don't you tell me what that is? Well, the Spencer Phipps Proclamation of 1755 is just one of many scalp proclamations that were issued against Wabanaki people. The Spencer Phipps Proclamation is specific to the Penobscots, and it declares the Penobscots as enemies, and it lays out exactly how much money a colonist could get for turning in the scalps of Penobscot men, women, and children. And the pay that they would receive for these scalps, which were referred to as redskins, 
was quite hefty. I heard it said that it was the equivalent to an annual wage for teachers at that time. All right, so the incentive for someone to, to actually become a bounty hunter, as it were, would be so high. Yes. So if you were an early settler without money, it, it incentivized going out and killing Native people if you could find them. That's right. And some history has documented how some of the largest um, land grabs were because of scalping that removed the Indians from the land, and then people who were the best bounty hunters would acquire these prime pieces of land in return. So it wasn't for their just money. Service, right? What I remember from childhood was hearing that the Indians were the scalpers. I mean, that was the association, was that Indians were scary people who would scalp white men. So when I sat in that auditorium and heard that actually it was the opposite, that the government was paying white people to literally bring in the torn off scalps of Native people, I felt such horror and also such, I was so stunned at how um, silent, that how completely absent from my education that knowledge they had, this is Esther, they had different um, monetary value depending on the gender or the age of Penobscots that were taken in. And there was a Native group that has just um, recently talked about um, the way that they would determine whether or not the scalp was from a man or a woman or a child was that sometimes they would take the genitals in as proof. You know, any how could you get any more brutal? But it was easier, I imagine, than transporting a whole... Because they could take live prisoners. They could take the whole body or they could take the scalp. Mm-hmm. And but it's I also guess, desecration of the body. It's mm-hmm. like a whole other level yeah. of So And, and children, um, you know, being hunted. So we think about our ancestors that survived that. And the legacy of that, that terror. Yes, What always strikes me is how it wasn't that long ago. Mm -hmm. I always um, reference it by saying that it was my great-grandmother's great-grandmother's generation. So that feels really, really recent in our past. Right. Yet very little is known about it. And, you know, what a better way to hide that history than to turn it around and to indoctrinate children into believing that Native people are the ones that scalp you know, and there are the ones to be feared, even in children's cartoons. I, I was absolutely taught that. I, I remember that vividly. I want to ask you about another thing that I learned that I didn't know about mm-hmm. before from you, Maria, um, which was that that was actually illegal up until very recently for Native Americans to practice their own religion and spirituality. How recently is it that, that there was religious freedom for Native people here? Well, there was a law instituted against Native peoples in the early 1800s that made practicing our religion and spirituality illegal. And it wasn't until passage of the American Indian Religious Freedom Act in 1978 that it actually became legal for us to practice our um, traditional ceremonies and songs and ways of um, spirituality. That's not to say they didn't happen. Um, they just weren't happening publicly. So what's stunning to me about that piece of history is that um, Native peoples are still fighting for rights which other people have had for 
centuries, um, and we're still fighting for basic rights like religious freedom. And the right to vote, as a matter of fact, is another right that um, Native peoples here in Maine didn't receive until 1968 um, for a state election. So that whole while, while um, they are being colonized, they have absolutely no say or participation in the colonizing government. And um, Maine has the dubious distinction of being the last state in the nation to ratify the federal law giving um, Native Americans permission to vote. It's stunning for me. I, I think of American identity as being so rooted in the sense of pride about religious freedom and about the right to vote. So it, it really undermines, in a sense, even the self-image of what this country is about to take that in. Um, I want to ask now a little bit more about child welfare practices and how those have evolved over through history up until 1978. Um what I understand is that throughout the 1800s, there was a belief that Native people kind of were unfit to raise children and that they needed to be, for their own good, removed from their parents and brought to either boarding schools or white families. And Esther, I wonder if you could kind of bring me through the, the history of how uh, the child welfare kind of state system has interfaced with Wabanaki families um, leading up to the point we are now. Well, when the strategies of genocide that we talked about um, included scalping and smallpox blankets and war, uh, it did not work. Um, <clears throat> there was a movement that was seen as pretty progressive to um, not physically uh, kill Native people, but to kill the Native in the person. So this uh, forced assimilation became the strategy of cultural genocide. Uh, and <clears throat> the board and school movement uh, began in the late 1800s. I think, I want to say 18, I'm thinking about the Carlisle Indian Industrial School that I think it operated from 1879 to 1918. Uh, and the Carlisle School was where many Wabanaki um, people attended. And I even hate to call it a school because it really wasn't a school. It was an institution. And Carlisle alone um, was one of many boarding schools across the country that were run by different religious orders. The federal government actually passed a law that Native children under the age of 16 had to go to boarding school. They provided funds to these um, churches and societies to run the boarding schools. And at Carlisle alone, in the years it operated, there were over 10,000 children that attended. Four or five-year-old kids being taken thousands of miles away and not returning home until they were adults sometimes, being stripped of anything that made them uh, who they were. So their hair was, you know, the physical appearance was the first to try to be altered. They cut their hair. They um, forbid them to speak their language, forbid them to communicate with their family if they were from a sibling group. Or, and on top of that, they were, they were treated pretty beyond that, even more horribly. There was a lot of sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse of these children. 
and it's it's difficult to to when you think about it that way. You're home one day and you know they come in. Sometimes they would talk people into it. Sometimes they would just take the children, um, take them thousands of miles away, and <clears throat> so literally federal agents would show up at their house and or the, take their children. The people who ran the schools, the federal government provided the money to these places to run these schools, and it wasn't only you know the children that were taken that suffered. Our communities were devastated when the children were taken because our beliefs, you know, our traditional beliefs around children are so different than that of these colonists that came here. You know, the, the law, the child welfare law in this country, when you, if you adopt a child, you go to probate court to finalize the adoption because it's about possessions. Child's a possession, uh, which is so different than how Native people viewed children, and they were they were devastated. Our communities were devastated when the children were taken. Um, so that <clears throat> that kind of trauma didn't get left at the boarding school when the children left the boarding school to come home, um, and they came home to communities that weren't the same. They weren't the same. Their communities weren't the same. So those you know those things were deliberate, deliberate strategies to to uh, take the Indian out of the children and it was seen as progressive um, progressive and, and as compared to kill, just outright killing them right and you know and then there was also that other layer of um, they they can't parent their children right uh, the way that we would you know another policy and strategy uh, was the Indian Adoption Project Tell me about where that. the federal government the Bureau of Indian Affairs who is was responsible to fulfill their trust responsibility to Native people in exchange for all this land that they took. Um, they contracted with the Child Welfare League of America to conduct an experiment to prove that Native children were better off raised in white homes. And it began in New England in 1958. And they took um, 395 children from state child welfare agencies, private adoption agencies, um, so other social service agencies, um, and took these children and had them adopted by white folks. And they followed their um, progress for 10 years. In 1978, ICWA was passed to address the disproportionate rates of Native children being taken into state care. That's ICWA, you know, which if is the Indian, Indian Child, Child Welfare, Welfare Act. Act. Yeah, so if, if uh, say, Native people are 1% of the population, but yet they make up 30% of the child welfare roles, you know, that, that's disproportionate. And Maine um, had historically had one of the highest rates of removal of Native children. Um, after the ICWA was passed in 78, um, even uh, into as late as 1999, I think it was 16% of all Maliseet children were in state care. And that's, I want to say, one of the pieces of the wood on the fire that started this whole <laughs> this whole process and has led us to where we are now. That was part one of my interview with Maria Gerard and Esther Atien. Part two, which will air next week, will be a focus on the TRC itself, how it's going, how it's working, what's happening with it, and um, also more about how you can get involved. I want to end today's show by asking you, Maria Gerard, about resources on this history is one of the things that we've talked about so clearly today is how much I certainly didn't know and I think so many 
non-native people don't you know don't know this history and if i want to read more or watch documentaries or go to websites to educate myself further how can i do that well, the Maine Wabanaki Reach has a website that has a lot of good information on it, as well as um, resources for people, like a, a, like a bibliography for people who are looking to read and learn more. Um, and they are www.mainewabanakireach.org. Great. Also, off the top of my head, I would suggest... Um, a really good book for starters and a good overview is Unsettled Past, Unsettled Futures by Neil Rold, R-O-L-D-E. And there's a video that's available online, Wabanaki, A New Dawn. And that video can be viewed on the main Wabanaki Reach website. Great. Thank you so much. So again, my guests today have been Maria Gerard and Esther Atian. Next week will be part two of this series, and we'll be bringing Stephanie Bailey into the conversation. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole show and you would like to, or you'd like to send it to a friend, please go to our website, safespaceradio.com. While you're there, you can listen to all of our past shows. You can also subscribe to get an email with a link to this week's show as soon as it comes out. You can also find us on iTunes. You can like us on Facebook and Twitter at Safe Space Radio. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely.